illustration of uh, just getting to the bottom line. Uh, she didn't maybe understand all the intricacies of an appendectomy, and I can't even say that word because you can't say that word fast. But she understood that it was money for the family. And sometimes when we look at the scriptures, we need to get to the bottom line because there's a lot of information in here, and sometimes we get lost in the forest of all the things that God has for us. So as we're going through this series, and some of you are here for the first time, we're going through a series called Questions Asked and Answered, and particularly it's a survey in the New Testament. And as we do that, we want to get to the bottom line of each one of the 27 New Testament books. We're getting close to getting through the four Gospels. And even if you haven't been here, I want to give you a little bit of review by way of the bottom line as it relates to the four Gospels. The Gospel of Matthew is all about a little tax collector uh, sharing the message about Jesus, but particularly presenting the message about Jesus as the Messiah King. And really spoke to a Jewish audience, and he really wanted to affirm to them this was the promises fulfilled that God had given in the Old Testament. And, And then you turn to Mark. And Mark presented Jesus as the servant. Now, sometimes when we think about Jesus being the servant, we're going to look at that a little bit more this morning. We see it as much as a job description. What do you do for a living? Well, I serve. I'm a servant. Now, we don't use that language. We might say I'm a waiter or a waitress or whatever it might be. But we know this is a person who is serving. Well, this is true about Jesus. He did not come to be served, but to, to serve and give his life. But it's also a designation of not only his job or what he did when he was here, but also who he was. For you see, in Isaiah, it it speaks about that one who is going to be coming, and he is the servant of the Lord. Uh, Just for extra credit this morning, turn at the Old Testament. Turn to Isaiah chapter 52. And so as I'm just giving you the bottom line of Jesus in Mark, it, it presents Jesus as the servant, but much more than simply what he did. And we're being looking at probably the greatest illustration of that, uh, this morning in the Gospel of John. But in Isaiah 52, uh, toward the end of that chapter, right before verse uh, chapter 53, in verse 13 it says this, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage will be marred more than any man. And that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? And his form more than the sons of men. So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see, and what they had not heard they shall consider. And then turning to Isaiah 53, verse 11, it says, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant will justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So when we see Jesus as a servant, as the servant, it speaks not only that he came not to be served, but he came as the servant to deal with our greatest need. And then you look at the Gospel of Luke, according to Luke, and that's all about presenting Jesus as the perfect man. And if we were to imagine that God were to enter and invade history as a man, he would not only be a man, he would be the man. He would be the perfect man. And then you have the Gospel of John. And we're spending three weeks in this Gospel. It's the unique Gospel. It's not one of the, what's called the synoptic Gospels, which is seeing everything together as those three Gospels uh, tell the, the life and story of Jesus. Nine percent of it is unique, and it really presents Jesus as fully God. Now, as we think about that being the bottom line, for most of us uh, who are somewhat experienced about being in a place like this, we're thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's 
Christianity 101. Jesus is God. And yet that is the struggle for all to look at him. Is he more than just a religious leader, a prophet, someone who got people kind of excited about spiritual things? I've uh, come across a, a number of people when they look at Jesus, they say, well, you know, did Jesus ever really clearly claim to be God? Well, the answer to that is yes in so many different ways, but we're going to see how John uniquely did that. And this morning, just if you want to kind of get a handle on what I'm going to try to do before we prepare for the Lord's table, is I want to do three things. I want to present to you the seven I am statements of Jesus that speak about Jesus being fully God. Then I want to do a quick survey of some chapters in the Gospel of John, and we've tried to do that in our, in our journey through these uh, books to kind of give you an overview of what happens in the, the variety of things is revealed by these authors. And then I want to present Jesus as the servant. The seven I am statements, a survey of some chapters, and then presenting Jesus as servant. The seven I am statements. And if you ever get to a point where you want to memorize some things in the Bible, here are some pretty good things to memorize. Because it speaks not only what he claimed to be, but really who he is in terms of living that out. Jesus made seven amazing statements. And if, if, if they were not true, then Jesus is a crazy man. Uh, let's look at them real quickly this morning. Jesus said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And if you understand the context, we looked at that a little bit last week. He's not simply saying that, uh, you know, I've got something to give you that's, uh, that's good or nice. He's saying, I am the source of life. And if you take of me, then your life will last forever. And he compared it with the, the manna, the food that came down from heaven, uh, to this food that will last forever. I am the bread of life. I am the source of life. I am the one who will sustain life forever. You know, we uh, probably most are familiar with that statement. Jesus said, thou should not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. We know on a physical level, if we do not eat, we will not live. And what he was saying here, if you do not eat of me, you will not live for eternity with me. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He went also and said, I am the light of the world. And in there he was speaking again. Most of us here have had some occasion to visit an optometrist and check our eyesight out. And some of you are blessed by your creator God to give you excellent eyesight, 2020, whatever it might be. But the truth is, if you live for any length of time, every single one of you in this room will have vision impaired. There's going to come a point in your life where you start reading like this, and it gets a little farther out, a little farther out, unless someone gives you corrective lenses or surgery or whatever it might be, your sight is going to be impaired. And Jesus was speaking very plainly to them. I am the light of the world. You will not see clearly what this world is all about until you come to me. And then he gives an object lesson that in one of the chapters right following that statement. He goes on and says, I am the door of the sheep. And really very clearly, as he made that statement, they, they recognized he was saying, I, I'm the entry point. There were a number of people in Jesus' day, and it still happens today, people, how can I, how can I get to that place which God has prepared for us for eternity? How, how, do I, how can I know for sure I'm getting there, getting to heaven? And Jesus said, I am that entry point. I am the door of the sheep. Of course, the question for each one of us here this morning, have you gone through that door? Remember Bob Barker, you know, uh, the price is right. You now, which, which curtain do you want to pick? Curtain number one, curtain number two, curtain number three? 
There's only one door, and Jesus is that door. He goes on and says, in John chapter uh, 10 again, he says, I am the good shepherd. Probably one of the most uh, favorite passages in all God's word is Psalm 23, which speaks about the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know who that identifies with in the New Testament? It's Jesus. He is that shepherd. He is the good shepherd. It's interesting in Scripture, that phrase is used in a variety of different ways for Jesus. He's also the chief shepherd. And really the interesting point about this, if you read the context of John chapter 10, he's speaking about the shepherd who is not only powerful but good in that he is the shepherd who knows every one of us by name. I was kidding Brandon this this morning as uh, I I saw him right before the service. And when when we were down in Mexico, they were saying, uh, who who is that big guy that, you know, uh, and they were pointing to to their skin. And and I said, Brandon. Oh, yeah, Brandon, Brandon. Why didn't he come down? You know, he didn't have a passport. That's why he couldn't come down. But, uh, you know, they remembered Brandon. And isn't it great to be remembered? isn't Isn't it awesome to have people know your name? There, there's, a, there's a way people in our world do. They, they'll name drop because if you know somebody, that means you're important because you know somebody. You know, if you know the good shepherd, not only do you know him, but he knows you. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. Many of us have been in those services called memorial services or funeral services where we remember those who have gone to the grave. And I'm always marked, well, I wonder how being a person who participates in those services, usually up front, I wonder, well, how would a Jesus perform a service like, like this? And all you have to do is turn, turn to John chapter 11. When he was at a memorial service, a funeral service, it was all over because he could bring that person back to life. But often when I use that passage, I'll say this, you know, there's something greater than Jesus being able to raise Lazarus from the dead. Because we could pray, and many of you have gone through that just recently. Think of the Lloyd family just uh, seated this morning. It's great if, if our loved ones could live just a little longer. But how is that compared to people living forever? And what he got is very personal here. He wasn't just talking about a general resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection. It's all tied to me. And then he made the statement, I am the way, the truth and the life. And again, that speaks of exclusive. I can't say that word either very fast. It means that, again, it, it only comes this way. There are many great world religions throughout the earth. One of the things that Christianity states so very strongly, it, it's all about Jesus. Jesus was the one who said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And then he finishes off his I am statements in the Gospel of John with I am the true vine. And really that's the whole point of us understanding he is not only the the source of eternal life, but he is the source of the quality of life that God can give. That if you want to have a fruitful life, if you want to experience the presence of God in your life, you need to plug into that source. And one of the things that, that we're was being done down in Mexico. We put a playground together and planted uh, shrubbery around various places. You know, you can have a very healthy plant, but all you have to do is snip off a branch from the power source, the vine, and it will die. 
And Jesus was saying, you can do all things in this world, but you're not plugged into the true vine. You will not have life. So as we think of the bottom line of the Gospel of Matthew, it's all understanding that Jesus is fully God. I don't know if you ever this occasion. I got uh, home last night, and in our door there's a little pamphlet from uh, a particular source of people that are very religious and in it, it said, Jesus takes away the sin of the world. And a uh, pretty, imp- pretty impressive statement of faith. Uh, they come from a kingdom hall of Jehovah's Witnesses. But as they ask the question, Jesus takes away the sin of the world, right after that, they ask the question, well, how does he do so? But the unique thing about this, and I don't think it was done by accident, when they said, how does he do so? He is not capitalized. It's in the singular case. He like any other he. Maybe an exalted he, but not fully God. And the plain teaching of God's word, the plain teaching of the Gospel of John is that Jesus could not take away the sins of the world or your sins or my sins unless he is God. I remember when Hare Krishnas used to uh, walk around the airports I don't know if you've ever had experience of talking with them. And often when you have religious conversations with people who honor Jesus in a variety of different ways, whether it's those who are Jehovah's Witnesses or, or Mormons or, for that matter, even some Islamic people. And, and when they talk about Jesus, they talk about Jesus in, in glowing terms. Sometimes they'll even say, well, I, I believe that Jesus is God. But what they mean by that is not what Jesus meant when he said he was God. Well, Hare Krishna, if you ever talk with them, basically they'll say he's God. Then you'll say, well, uh, no, if you, if you really understand where they're coming from, say, well, no, you don't believe that in the way Jesus does because you believe it in a Hindu way. He is one of many gods. See, the Bible presents Jesus as Jesus being God with the capital G. And so as you look at your journey about finding God, if you're going to understand the message, and, and the message, the first four books of the New Testament, the Gospels are God's story. The God's story is plain. Jesus is the Messiah King. He is the servant. He is the perfect man. He is fully God. And apart from that, we don't get the bottom line. Now, that, that theme is, is throughout the Gospel of John. But let's look at it this morning. As we see that, Let's, let's see what the Scripture says. And, and if uh, you remember what I've done in some of these things, give you a kind of a handle on how you can get a handle on an entire book in the Bible. One way to do that is just to put some summary titles out of each chapter. And if you want to put it to a mnemonic device that helps full, uh, Jesus Christ is fully God. That's 21 uh, letters, 21 chapters in the Gospel of John, and you kind of see that flow through the book. I just want to touch on that because I want to focus on Jesus being the servant or Jesus on servanthood. But in chapter 6, Christ is, uh, we're going to give nine chapters, two by way of review. Uh, Christ is the bread of life. That's where Jesus said, I am the bread of life, chapter 6. Chapter 7, hatred and rejection of Jesus. And, and let's be honest, the message of Jesus being fully God is not an easy message for people to hear if they don't believe it. Be- because it, it, it just levels the ground in comparison to everything else they maybe they've heard and believed. But Jesus made that statement. When he made those statements, people would pick up stones to what? To kill him. 
And so there was hatred of Jesus, even after he would feed the multitude. Chapter 8, interesting statement there. Jesus speaks a message. Are you related to God or Satan? Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8. We're going to spend a a couple minutes here. I cannot resist the temptation. John chapter 8. Sometimes you, you hear about the message of the Old Testament is, is a message of wrath. You, hear, you see about God's anger towards sin. And then in the, gospel, in the New Testament, it's all about God's love. And Jesus always speaks nice things. Well, listen to what he says here to very religious people. John chapter 8, beginning with verse 42. For Jesus said to him, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Nor have I come to myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, verse 43? Because you are not able to listen to my word. And then he makes this statement, verse 44. You are of your father, the what? The devil. And the desires of your father who, want, who you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which of you convicts me of sin? And if I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears God's word. Therefore, you do not hear because you are not of what? God. That's not exactly <laughs> the way to win friends, is it? I'm putting it very plainly. If you really were of God, you would hear what I have to say and you would lovingly fawn down and believe it. But you are of your father, the devil, and he is the father of lies. Chapter 9. In chapter 8, there's so many good things in chapter 8. He speaks about I am the lie of the world. But in chapter 9, he gives an illustration. If I'm the light of the world, then can it change people's lives? <laughs> That's the story of the blind man given sight. I was blind, but now I see. Chapter 10 is about shepherd truths. We talked about that already. Chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. Chapter 12, a great story about an expression of love to Jesus as the alabaster of very expensive perfume is poured on Jesus and his expression of extravagant love. And then chapter 13, serving by washing feet. The Gospel of John is about Jesus being fully God. It's illustrating the seven I am statements of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. It's illustrated in in just him living it out in front of people. And it's interesting as you look at the Gospel of John, there's a dividing place in this Gospel in which Jesus turns from speaking to one audience and and then kind of turning his his face and speaking to another. One in situations like this, uh, speakers like to look around the crowd and try to get as much eye contact as possible, not just to speak to one particular section. Well, there came a point in Jesus' life where he began to turn his face from those whom he used to preach and teach and began to zero in on a few. And it really begins in, in John chapter 13. You could say in John chapters 1 through 12, it's the public ministry of Jesus. And in chapter 13 to the end of the chapter, it's the private ministry of Jesus. Where he begins to speak into the heart and lives of the people who knew him. 
and he begins to prepare them for when he was to leave. It's somewhat like why we gather for worship, is we prepare ourselves each week to, to leave this place, to spend the rest of our hours living it out, to be concerned about our oikos, and, and to look for times to, to do life together, and to be the people of God, to be the church. And so Jesus begins his final week. And that's what's very interesting about the Gospels. Comparatively, there's very little about the first part of his life. But the final week brings us to the point where we're going to experience the communion table. John chapter 13 was given in the context of his disciples going to be experiencing the Last Supper, which we know is our communion experience. And Jesus gives them an object lesson of what it really means to be one of his followers. It should be on our resumes, each one of our resumes, if, if we're truly one that wants to please him. It's Jesus on servanthood giving it not only in principle, but in practice. And there's no way to do this passage justice. And I, and I put a few handles down for you this morning to, to kind of put it together, but th- these could be improved on so much. In fact, every time I look back at it, I want to change how I phrased it. But I hope this morning that when we leave this place, we'll to- totally and fully believe that Jesus is fully God, but what's the implications for our life? Do, do we have the heart of a servant. Let's pick up the account in John chapter 13. And then as we begin, we'll see that Jesus serves others consistently in ways that show it comes from love. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 and 2, uh, particularly verse 1. Now, therefore, the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I think we've all been in situations where people serve us and maybe even serve us well. You ever bought a used car? Or that matter, a new car? Or have you ever been in a place where the waiter or waitress was expecting a good tip and maybe they were extremely friendly and, and caring? And, and, and there's nothing wrong with that, but it's for the purpose of, of serving you well for maybe personal gain. But Jesus wanted to demonstrate that he was serving them not out of personal gain, but because he loved them. And, and so as we think about the message of Jesus on servanthood, it, it's the willingness and passion to help others out of a heart filled with love. The word, he served him to the end. It's the word telos. It's the idea of completeness or perfection. He wanted them to understand that it came from his commitment to them. When we understand what it means to be a servant, it's serving others consistently. Not just when we feel like it or we want to or motivated or we feel that they deserve it, but we serve them consistently because we want them to know we love them. But then it's acted out. Let's look at it. 
And the handle for that, we need to serve others by doing what needs to be done, but with humility. Look at verse 2 through 5. And the supper being ended, the devil having already put in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, which is interesting, a side note here. Even on that day, Jesus served Judas knowing that he was to be his betrayer. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come down from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Now, let's picture this for a moment. And we need to understand, in fact, as we were driving back from Mexico, they have all kinds of ornaments. You've been there, haven't you? They have all kinds of stuff you can buy, and they'll have a lot of pictures of the Last Supper, and usually they're seated on tables. That's not how the Last Supper was observed. When you would go into the upper room or a place at a table, everyone would be seated or almost really lying down. And, And so often where you're head was somebody else's feet were in close proximity and so in those kind of environments if you had spent a day out in the world with sandals on your feet would be filthy and so when you were to go on an occasion like that it was not just a nice thing to have done it was almost a necessity people's feet had to be cleansed but but there's a pecking order here who's going to do it you go into the room and there's, there's no one there. It's just, just the gang. And interesting enough, in that culture, particularly the Jewish culture, if you were a Jewish servant, that wasn't even on your resume. That wasn't on your job. You didn't have to wash your master's feet. It could happen in the Gentile world, but even that wasn't necessarily a known practice. And so as this was about to happen, no one... No one wanted to take the towel. In fact, we know that they already had previous conversations with Jesus. Well, you know, when you establish the kingdom, who, who, who among us are going to be the greatest? And they were hoping to be, you know, number one, number two, number three, but no one wanted to be 11 or 12. It would have been a statement on their own that they felt they were the lowest of Jesus' followers if they had grabbed the towel. So Jesus grabbed the towel. Jesus was given a powerful illustration here. Because not only was it not known in the Jewish world to wash your, your master's feet, and even in the Gentile world, it, it was never seen as a superior serving an inferior. But even beyond that, they recognized they were his followers. But it was, couldn't even be imagined that... As a follower, you would see something. In fact, we have all things in our list. You know, here are things I don't do. You know, I don't do windows. I don't do toilets or I don't, you know, whatever it is. You know, what, what is it on your to-do list? You, you don't do that. That's beneath you. Uh, as he began to take this so menial task, they were understanding the principle that as a servant, they would never see something below them again because their master had done it. The heart of servanthood presented by Jesus is that we're here to do whatever we can that needs to be done 
and with humility. Feeling nothing is beneath us. But as you can imagine, there had to be a reaction when Jesus did that. And they were probably all imagining a variety of things, and then Peter speaks up. And Peter's interaction with Jesus kind of gives another principle. It's, it's, we need to serve others by being willing to help people, even though it might initially hurt their pride. Because submission is not only being a servant, but sometimes willing to be served. And for some of us here this morning, we struggle with that more than anything else. Is when we have a need, we, it's so hard for us to receive help. And humility is not only giving help, but receiving it. Here's Peter's response. Jesus answered instead of, uh, verse 6, back up to verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered him and said, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Jesus said to him, you shall never wash my feet. In the original language, this is, it's, it's a double negative. It, it, it cannot be said any stronger. It's now that role reversal that Peter found himself in sometimes where the teacher, where the student was trying to tell the teacher what to do. <laughs> You're not doing that. You don't understand. You don't have the right to wash my feet is basically what he's saying. No matter what happens, we never tell the master what to do. And yet that's what Peter did. He, he, he didn't want to receive what, what Jesus was going to give and to teach. Jesus responds back to him very strongly. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, oh, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. If that's, if that's what it takes to be sure I'm, I will follow here, you can give me a bath. Forget about just the feet. And in this, Jesus gave a broader, probably, picture of what's beyond just the washing of feet. In the Old Testament, when there was a priest and he was brought into that position of spiritual leadership, he was was consecrated by a a full washing that was never repeated. But on a daily basis, whenever he would serve in the temple, he had to wash his hands and his feet. And it really speaks about how our relationship with God is established and then lived out. None of us can be a part of who Jesus is unless we've been washed. And that's what he was saying to Peter. He said, you're really part of who I am, but you understand that you need to be washed if you're a follower. And that's a once and for all experience. That's where we can look back in our life and say, you know, when did I come to that point, that, that, that line where I needed to to cross over, and I made that choice. I'm in my sin. How do I get out of my sin? I need a Savior, and and Jesus is the Savior. I need to respond. I'm now responding. I once did not believe. Now I believe. I once rejected Him. Now I receive Him. And that point of receiving him is a once and for all cleansing because he comes in and makes us clean. But then we go on, and that's what's called justification. It's declared righteous in his eyes. We, we never have to worry about if there's any sin that hasn't been covered by the cross. But then we live life out, and 
We say things to people we shouldn't say. We, we do things that we shouldn't do. We've left things that need to be done and they haven't been done. We've been more concerned about being served rather than serving. And, and we need that daily cleansing, the washing of the feet. Say, God, I've messed up again and just cleanse me so I can live out my life for you. That's not justification. That's a once and for all cleansing. But sanctification, two-bit theological words, is, is really the act of living it out. Where we come into God's presence, God, if there's anything in my life that needs to be cleansed now in terms of my, my life with you. And that's what we do in preparing for the table. And, and that's what he's trying to tell Peter. Not only in terms of objects we've got to be servants, but this is what cleansing the daily life of living for God. We, we confess our sins because, not because we need God's forgiveness if we know the, the Lord Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. That's been settled. But we need to have that daily cleansing. Jesus goes on now. and He, he tries to, to bring it home as far as the lifestyle of a servant. He tells them that, verse 10, Jesus said he was bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said you are not all clean. Being the presence of Jesus, being the presence of Christians, being the presence of hearing God's word, doesn't automatically make a person a Christ follower. They've got to be cleansed by him. And he knew there was one in their midst that was not. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said, do you not, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet and you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, or truly, truly, I say to you, as a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. And then this statement. If you know these things, blessed or happy are you if you do them. And that's the last principle this morning I just want to highlight out of this. It's, it's serving others joyfully by following the Lord's example. You see, as you think about this life of servanthood, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because in many times of my day or life, I'm looking for someone to serve me rather than me to serve them. But, you know, Jesus said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And he's saying, and look, if you really want to follow my example, this is where true joy comes. It is when we serve and we serve it joyfully because we're following the Lord's example. We've seen that uh, program that comes on Sunday night, Undercover Boss. You've seen that? It's kind of an amazing show. I mean, they, they take these who are the, the head of their company, CEOs, presidents, whatever, and, and then they get sent out to uh, do whatever else does within their company. And they come back. It's interesting. They have the biggest smile, the biggest joy when they come back than they, than they did before they went. Why? Because they get to see their people, they get involved, they do life together, and, and they recognize, hey, we're in this together. You see, Jesus set the example. He was the undercover boss who came and did it all in our presence. 
what's the point this morning? God's people always need to be looking for ways to serve. And we're not always going to have a label or a job description or a resume that says what we're doing. I mean, sometimes we need to have those intentional things we're doing on a regular, consistent, faithful basis, which demonstrates we're doing out of love because it's not just something, it's, a, it's the passion of the moment. But we are just a people who look for ways to take the towel and the basin and wash people's feet. And this is not an ordinance where he wants us to, to grab everyone's toes and begin to clean them out. <laughs> he says, this is a lifestyle of seeking the needs of others and being a servant. We're, we're going to challenge our people as we approach Easter to, to demonstrate that in serving others by praying for them. And, and there's going to be a level of commitment for that to happen. We're going to be challenged, all of us, to, to take those invite cards and, and give them to people within our friendship circles, our, our oikos. We're going to be looking for ways just to demonstrate our faith in, in our neighborhoods and our places of work, just to demonstrate that we know the servant who came to serve. In a few moments, we're going to take communion. And this is for all of God's people who, who know Him and love Him. And it's an opportunity for our feet to be cleansed in a fresh way as we remember the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we're we're so humbled by the fact, first of all, that you would just come. You being fully God who would become a man on our behalf so that we might see God before us. And then you made that supreme sacrifice on the cross. But you lived it out in the day-to-day serving of the needs of others. Not only in the miraculous where you would feed the the 5,000 and heal the multitudes, but you would stoop down and do the menial task of demonstrating love in demonstrative ways. Fathers, we participate in remembering the cross around the communion table. Might you not only humble us, but also fill us with joy of the opportunity to follow your example. And we praise in Jesus' name. Amen.